with me again to 1st Peter chapter 1 and we are continuing our series of sermons uh, in 1st Peter and this morning we're going to pick up with verse 13 and go through verse 16 of 1st Peter chapter 1 1st Peter 1 verse 13 Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy. For I am holy. And that is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for another time together in your word. We thank you that uh, we are part of a body that is committed to the truth, to the inerrancy, to the power of your word. And we thank you for it. And we pray this morning as we uh, go through this text that we would experience the the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know, O oh Father, that it is a powerful tool that you use, not just to bring people to faith, but to build your people up in the faith. And we ask for that now, that you would uh, be with any here this morning who might not know Christ, that you would open their eyes to see the reality of the truth of the gospel of Jesus. They would be drawn to it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And for those of who are believers, that you would strengthen our hearts, and encourage us in our walk in faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the gospel. Actually, is the centerpiece of the whole Bible. A centerpiece, you know, is something that is placed at the center of the table so that everyone who looks at it will focus their attention there. A properly placed centerpiece causes everything else on the table kind of to fall away into some degree of insignificance because that centerpiece is so bright, so attractive, and so alluring. And that's the way Jesus is, you see, in the message of the Bible. He is the centerpiece Everything in the Bible points to him. And even though there are many things in the Bible of great importance and of great interest and of great significance, everything else in the Bible fades away to some degree of lesser significance in the brightness and the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, everything in the Old Testament anticipated And looked forward to the promised Messiah who would come and deliver God's people from their sin. And the New Testament looks back upon that fulfillment of the promise that God made. And explains the implications of that to the people of God. All believers, Old Testament, New Testament alike, are saved by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Old Testament believers looked forward in faith 
to what Christ would do. New Testament believers look back in faith upon what Christ has done. And to say that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the Bible is as I began to say that he is the centerpiece of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news, isn't it? It's the good news of salvation. Salvation through Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace through faith alone in him. And I've said before, 1 Peter is all about the gospel. This book we're studying is a gospel-focused, gospel-driven book, especially this first chapter. And that's why every sermon so far in chapter 1, I think there will be two more from chapter 1, and they will be also, have some reference to the gospel in the title. Because... First Peter is so much about the gospel. We, we've already seen, for example, how the gospel gives us encouragement. We looked at gospel encouragement. The fact that, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be his people gives us such great encouragement in life. We looked at gospel hope. And now the, the gospel gives us Real hope, not just for blessings here in this life, but a sure and certain hope to be with Christ in heaven. We, we look at gospel joy and how the gospel gives us joy. The, the good news of who Christ is and, and what Christ has done gives us joy, even when we're going through extremely difficult and hard times. Last week, the message was on gospel mystery. And now, the unfolding of the, the message of Christ was a mystery, even to the prophets who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, foretold His coming. And how the message of the apostles kind of unravels that for us and shows us how the, the pieces of the puzzle of the, the message of Christ all fit together. This morning, we're going to be talking about gospel Obedience. And now the call of the gospel is not just a faith in Jesus, not just a believing in him, but living our lives for him in obedience to his word. Two things I want to draw from this text about that for you this morning. First is we see in the passage what I'm calling the preparation for obedience. And I want you to notice that this passage, beginning with verse 13, starts with the word therefore. At least in my text it does. Now I've, all, I've said before many times that whenever you find that word, you have to ask your question, yourself a question. What is the therefore therefore? Because you see that word always ties together two independent but related concepts. That is, it ties together what has been said already with what is about to be said now. So as Peter moves into a discussion of the importance of obedience, he ties together our obedience to Christ with the great salvation we have in Christ he's just been describing in the first 12 verses. It's as though Peter is asking this question. 
since you do have such a great salvation in Christ, a salvation that gives you such encouragement, a salvation that gives you such hope, a salvation that gives you such joy in the midst of your circumstances, what is going to be your response to that? What what are you going to do about that? What does God call you to do in response to this gift of salvation that he's given to you? And the answer is it must be a commitment of obedience. And so, so the first step in obedience, gospel obedience, is to remember the great salvation that you have in Christ. You see, the gospel purifies us. It cleanses us. John says, everyone who has their hope fixed on Christ purifies himself. Everyone who has their hope fixed on Christ purifies himself. There is a sanctifying effect to the gospel, not just a saving effect to the gospel. And that, so we prepare our hearts for obedience by, by looking back and remembering the great salvation we have in Christ. And that involves several things. For one, in verse 13, Peter says it involves preparing your minds for action. Literally, the text says to gird up your minds for action. I think the King James uses that phraseology. Gird up your minds for action. You know, back in Jesus' day and in Paul's day and Peter's day, the New Testament days, everyone, men and women, wore robes. And that was fine to wear a robe until you needed to, to do something quickly or run somewhere fast. It's hard to run when you have the hem of a robe dangling around your ankles. And so when they wanted to do something quickly, go into some phase of physical action, they would gird up their robes. Technically it was called girding up their loins, uh, their waist. They would, they would pick up the, the robe, the hem of the robe, they would tuck it in at the waist so their legs would be free to, to move. And that's what Peter's saying here. Gird up your minds. Remove all distractions that would keep you from obeying the gospel as you should and obeying Christ as you ought. You know, the mind is an important part of who we are as believers. Paul tells us in Romans 12 to uh, not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of our minds. This whole passage we read from Colossians 3 this morning. Gavin led us in. It's all about fixing your mind on things above and not on things that are on earth. And so we're to, to gird up our minds to, to remove the distractions that might keep us from obeying Christ. It also involves, in verse 13, what he calls being sober in spirit. Being sober. You know, when people are intoxicated, they have poor judgment, and they make bad decisions. They are disoriented, aren't they, by the effect of the alcohol they've consumed. The Bible says that the world is intoxicating. 
when we focus our minds and our hearts upon the things of the world, it overwhelms us. It intoxicates us. It leads us to make poor decisions, to make wrong choices. And that's why the Bible tells us, do not be conformed to this world. The Bible admonishes us several times, be alert and sober. To be sober in all things. And that word sober means to be steady and calm, to be in full use of your mental faculties, to weigh matters carefully before making a decision. Gird your mind for action. Remove all distractions. Be sober in spirit. Be clear-headed and clear-minded as you pursue the things of the gospel. Then there's another thing we must do to prepare our hearts for obedience. And that is to have the right focus. End of verse 13. Fixing your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, we're again to be spiritually minded, setting our minds and our hearts on the grace, what? To be brought to us when Christ returns. Now we've got a lot of grace already in our lives that Christ has revealed to us, but it's nothing like what we're going to experience someday. The Bible tells us that Jesus has come and that Jesus will come. That's what Jesus told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will, I will come again. And I'll receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. We believe in the second coming of Christ. We don't know the when or the how, but we do know the fact of it. And there ought not be anything more cleansing, purifying, life-changing for you and the awareness that Jesus is coming again. When the disciples asked him, well, when will that happen? Jesus responded this way. It is not for man to know. Your responsibility is to be on the alert. And so we prepare our hearts for action, Peter says, three ways. Actually, four ways. Remembering the great salvation we have in Christ, Girding up our minds for action, getting ready, moving all distractions by um, being sober in spirit, fixing our hope completely on Christ and the grace He'll bring to us at His coming. So that's the preparation. Then in the rest of the text, we find what I'm calling the grounds for obedience or the basis for our obedience. And there are several of those given here in our text. And the basic ground for our obedience is that we are God's children. You see, when we come to saving faith in Jesus, we are adopted into his family. We become his children. And John says that all who receive Christ are given the privilege of becoming the children of God. The Bible says the Holy Spirit testifies to our hearts that we are his children. Notice in verse 14 that Peter refers to believers as obedient children. You see, our relationship to God as His children and our obedience to God's Word 
are closely related. You know, children in a family, in a physical family, a nuclear family, children in a family have one primary God-given responsibility. And that is to obey their parents. The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. How do children do that primarily? They do that by obeying their parents. They ought to get the children's attention for just a moment. Obeying your parents. Not not the fourth time or the fifth time they tell you. The first time they tell you. Children have a responsibility given to them by God. And that is to honor and to obey their parents. And so it is with us as God's children. We are to obey Him. That is our God-given responsibility as children of God. We are to do what He says. Jesus said, they will know you're my children if you keep my commandments. We are to show that we are His children by our righteous behavior. Peter says here, in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. First ground or basis for obedience is that we are God's children. And as such, we have an obligation to obey Him. The second basis is the holiness of God. The text says in verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Now I know that holiness sounds like an antiquated, out-of-date word. We don't talk about holiness a lot. We don't talk about holiness enough. But it is one of the most frequently used words to describe God in the Bible. You know, in Isaiah 6 we find the seraphim who are attending God's throne. And what they sing back and forth to each other is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And of course we sing a great hymn, don't we? Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. All the earth shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. God is holy. And not only is he holy, but he calls on his people to be holy. That's what Peter says here in verse 15. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. You see, God's holiness is to be the pattern for our holiness. What does that mean? Well, at its, at its root, and Stephen mentioned this last week in Sunday school, at its root, holiness means to be different, to be separate, to be distinct. To be unique. And, and that's at his root. That, that's what the Bible means when it calls God holy. In Hannah's prayer, she said, There is no one holy like the Lord. To be holy means he is completely separate from everything else in life. And that's what it means at its root for us to be holy, for God's people to be holy. When he says, you be holy like I'm holy, that means he's telling you, you be different. You be unique. 
that, it all ties together with this admonition, don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed, be changed, be different. We're, we're not to be known by our conformity to the world around us, but our distinctiveness to the world. People ought to think there's something strange about us. They ought to think there's something unique about us. Well, can I say it? They might ought to think there's something a little bit odd about us. Because we are different. We have a new heart. We have a new life, a new focus, a new perspective, new priorities, new values that are different from those of the world. Be holy as I am holy. Of course, normally when we think of holiness in common language, we're thinking about behavior, aren't we? Holy behavior. Of course, that's where it leads. How do we show that we're different primarily if it's not by by the way that we live? and the difference it makes in the way that we conduct ourselves. You see, salvation leads to sanctification or to the desire to be like Christ. And that's what the text says, be holy in all your behavior. Then there's another ground for obedience here, and that's the call of God. Be holy, it says in verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. You know, one of the distinctions of Reformed theology is we believe in the effectual call of God to salvation. The, you know, God takes the initiative in salvation. When God calls one to faith, he changes their hearts so that he doesn't just enable them to believe, but he causes them to believe. God calls us to salvation. Why does God do that? Well, you say, he, he calls me to, to save me from hell. He, he calls me to save me from my sins. Oh, yes, that's true. But God calls you to be different. He calls you to be like himself. Remember what we find in, in that great text in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says that before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ. Why? So that we would be holy and blameless before Him. You see, I can say it this way. The the purpose of election and the purpose of effectual calling is that we would be holy under the Lord. It's always been that way. It was that way with God's people in the Old Testament. In fact, this is a quotation in verse 16 where it says, It is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. That was God's requirement then. And we saw it already in our uh, unison reading of Scripture. No, I'm sorry, in the catechism question. Uh, where it talks about the preface of the Ten Commandments. Turn with me to Acts, uh, excuse me, Exodus chapter 20. If you're wondering when we were going over the catechism question, what the preface is, it's Exodus 20, verse 2. Where God says this, I am the Lord your God, 
This is at Mount Sinai. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you go to verse 3, and what do you find? You find the star of the Ten Commandments. And God telling his people, this is how you're to live. Based on what? I am the Lord your God who redeemed you, who called you out of the land of Egypt. Now you live like you live like this. You keep these Ten Commandments. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 11. Just look at a number of verses here before we conclude this morning. Leviticus chapter 11. Verse 45. For I am the Lord your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Then he says, Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Go over to Leviticus 19. In verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel. And say to them. You shall be holy. For I the Lord your God am holy. And then one more. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. In verse 6. For, the Lord, for you are a holy people of the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now I can take you to many other passages that say the same thing. Where God says, be holy for I am holy. Be holy because I have redeemed you. And what I want you to see is their motivation for holiness is the same as ours. It's redemption. It's sanctification, it's salvation, it's deliverance. It's like God says, I have redeemed you, I've called you by name, I've given you new life. So now you be holy as I am holy. It's always been God's plan and God's design for his people. You see, your relationship to a holy God is the real basis for your own personal pursuit of holiness and obedience. You are his child. You belong to him. You bear his name. And that's why holiness and obedience should be so important to you. You see, obedience is the result of salvation. It's not the means to it. We don't obey God so he will save us. We obey him because he has saved us. Obedience is one of the primary marks of election. It was one of the primary signs of effectual calling. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When my sons were still at home, they would sometimes wonder why they couldn't do what their friends did. Why they couldn't go where their friends went. Why they couldn't watch the movies their friends watched. Or stay out as late as their friends stayed out. And sometimes my answer was simply this. You're not a part of those families. You're part of this family. You're a Schwanebeck. And Schwanebecks don't go there. They don't say that. They don't do those things. And that's what God is telling us here. You are my people. You bear my name. And you're to live the way that I call you.
and give you to live. That, my friends, is gospel obedience. And may God help us to pursue it with all that we have and all that we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We love you. We love your word. We pray that it would be the light into our path, the lamp into our way this morning. It would guide us to holiness and to obedience, gospel obedience in response to what Christ has done for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.